Is low-cost private education possible? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with James Tooley. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with James Tooley. James is a professor of education policy at Newcastle University, where he is also the director of the E.G. West Centre, which is dedicated to choice, competition, and entrepreneurship in education. Fun fact, the man the centre was named after, E.G. West, was a public choice economist and economic historian at Carleton University right here in Ottawa, Canada. He was interested in the relationship between the state and the education sector. James has done extensive work in demonstrating the benefits of private education for low-income families. Much of that work has focused on identifying ways to make private education more accessible and to facilitate its growth in the developing world, especially among the poor. James, welcome to The Curious Task. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for being on with us. So James, our question today, the main thrust of our episode is, is low-cost private education possible? To answer this question for yourself, you've traveled to many places in the world and have written a lot on this topic, of course. So I think this is a great chance for us to walk people through your findings and thoughts on this. And primarily, I wanted to focus on your experiences in developing in, in non-Western countries. So let's start with this. At the beginning of The Beautiful Tree, you talk about our perceptions in the developed world, about help being urgently needed to help desperate people in developing countries that can't help themselves, especially when it comes to education. And many think that just rich people benefit from private education in developing nations and, and benefits primarily the privilege. But as you show us in your book, quote, something quite remarkable is happening in developing countries today that turns the accepted wisdom on its head. I first discovered this for myself in January 2000. Would you mind taking us through a bit of a retelling of your discovery of India? I'll get into more specific questions later, but I really enjoyed that story at the beginning of your book, and I think the listeners would really like to hear about your trip and 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 your wandering and what you found. Okay, so, so it was in January 2000, so it was 21 years ago next week, in fact. It's Republic Day in India, or that's in 10 days' time, Republic Day. And, and so I, I was in India... I was an expert on private education, and private people used to think private education is about the elite, the rich. Um, and I was—I've become an expert on private education. I was there in Hyderabad, in South Central India, doing some consultancy work, evaluating high-cost private education. And um, my—that didn't gel well with me. I was an expert on private education, but I thought my life should be about serving the poorer communities, disadvantaged communities, for whatever reason. And um, so my life wasn't quite right. So I went into the slums of the old city of Hyderabad on my day off, Republic Day, in two weeks' time, 21 years ago, actually inspired by someone from your city, inspired by the work of E.G. West, who was a professor at Carleton University in Ottawa, Inspired by what he had said and found or pointed to was in what was happening in the slums of London, Newcastle, Manchester, and so on. In the 19th century, he had said there were these low-cost private schools. He pointed to those. I went with a hunch that I might find something similar in the slums of Hyderabad. And sure enough, I did. I went there and quickly came across one 
low-cost private schools charging in those days about one US dollar per month. Then I found another, another, and was soon connected with this federation of 500 low-cost private schools um, serving poor communities across Hyderabad and, and the rural areas. And I, I was greatly inspired by this. And I, you know, as I, I relate in the beautiful tree how I was just fired up and went back to uh, Delhi, then Washington, D.C., where my consultancy had emanated from and told people about it. And they said, calm down, Tuli. You, <laughs> you may have found a, a few businessmen ripping off the poor. There's nothing there. And it's only in Hyderabad. And maybe we know about it. And um, calm down a little, you know, when I found these schools that are serving the poor, they're very popular parents. There seem to be hundreds, not thousands of them. Anyway, I had to then find out how good they were and how many there were. And I managed to get research funding from the John Templeton Foundation. And I did research in a couple of places in India, both urban and rural. I went to uh, Accra in Ghana, Lagos in Nigeria, Nairobi in Kenya, and then later carried on research in Sierra Leone, Liberia, South Sudan, and um, Somalia. And the headline figures, I'll just give you that. I mean, you know, is it five points you can say? These schools are ubiquitous. They're serving, they're, they're all over the place. Um, very similar in Lagos and Delhi, you know, very similar in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. They're serving a majority of the poor, the research now shows 70 to 80% of kids in poor areas go to these low-cost private schools. Children in those schools outperform those in government schools. The majority of research shows that occasionally a research project will say they know best in the government schools, but they're a third of the price. Um, they're the preferred choice of parents. You know, Parents actively point to the advantages in these low-cost private schools. And they're affordable. They're affordable to parents on the poverty line. All our research, my research has shown those things. And um, yeah, for the last 21 years, I've been championing these private schools and talking to anyone like yourself who will care to listen about this amazing phenomenon. Yes, it is quite amazing. As I said, your, your book is, has so many details in it. And it was such, a, such an amazing thing to read. And I definitely encourage all our listeners to, to check it out and purchase it and read it. And, and I'd like to add another thing to what you just said there too, which is that you said in your book, quote, it appeared that these private schools, while operating as businesses, also provided philanthropy to their communities. That is to say that the business people that you talked to uh, wanted to be viewed as social workers and people that were actually being helpful to their community and helpful members of the community. And that, that's certainly in contrast to some of the experts that you talked to who always talked about these people trying to rip people off and target the poor, but especially in your trip to India, at least, and I'm sure the point generalizes, you said that a lot of the people running these private schools in the poor areas and, and the slums, uh, they didn't. They of course didn't want to be viewed like that. They thought that they were actually not only business people, but providing a community service. They were in fact members of the community. Yes, it's a very important point, and and, and I wouldn't want readers, uh, listeners to to hear it and think and, and overemphasize it. I mean, these schools typically are businesses. They're run as businesses. Right. They have to make you know a, a small surplus in order to keep. You know, people people going, but but they're you know they're not. I suppose you know they're not business people ripping off the poor. Absolutely not. They're people who have created small businesses, typically who are serving poor communities, who are giving the parents what they want and, and the children require. Sometimes they do have scholarships um, in the way that I described, and I, I you know discovered more about those after running some schools like this myself, I've, I've run some schools, 
And um, you know, quite often the scholarships are, they emerge sort of organically or informally, if you like. You know, there's some kid at your school and then his father dies or leaves. You, know, you don't throw him out of the school. You, know. you, you, you keep the kid there. And it's an effect of scholarship arises organically. And that sort of problem right. happens a lot. A, parent, a family suddenly can't afford what they were providing for their daughter before. So you keep her there and you don't throw her out. So it's, it's that's the more common thing, I think, than, than perhaps um, physically saying, we've got scholarships now, we're going to give five free places. Although another thing that would happen, of course, is you'd get, uh, you know, buy one, get one free. That would be a very typical way. So if you've got a large family, maybe three children, you pay for two and you get one one free or two free or whatever. Um, but, you know, I think, that, think the main point is no, there's no, nothing wrong with big businesses. You know, so, it, it, you know, that's why I'm being a bit expensive in my answer. You know, there's nothing wrong with being a business. There's nothing wrong with being for profit. But absolutely, it's not exploiting the poor, giving people what they want. And, um, and, and as you say, most of the entrepreneurs, um, that certainly that I catalogue there in the beautiful tree, they're from these poor communities themselves. The, they're perhaps slightly more educated than others in the community. and the community often has asked them to open a school. They've seen the need, they've gone out there, and they're seen and respected as, you know, as you said, community leaders in those communities. They're not seen as horrible business people coming in to make a killing. Absolutely. Yes, you're absolutely right. When I, when I read your book, I, d- I did not get the impression um, that that these people are just philanthropists or something. Absolutely, they are business people and entrepreneurs serving their communities. And there is nothing wrong with that, of course. But I guess more what I was trying to get at is that kind of idea of the small business, the entrepreneur who, of course, is trying to make a profit, run a business, but still is helpful to the community is certainly a stark contrast to the caricature painted by many people, at least uh, maybe in certain NGOs or certain quote-unquote development professionals or or people working uh, uh, even at our Canadian government, for instance, that might travel to one of these places and come back and talk about public education. If you listen to these people too much, it does seem you get more of the idea of some sort of uh, c- cigar chomping person uh, <laughs> exploiting the poor and maybe taking their last dollar and and not even teaching people anything. But but the the but the picture I'm trying to uh, paint in our listeners' head to people that haven't read the book is that again, as as you said, of course, although these people are running businesses, they're certainly number one not looked at that way by their customers, and number two, it doesn't seem, according to your research, that anything close to that caricature that or that weird painting of this exploiter is, is close to the reality. You're, you're absolutely right. And, you know, you, you mentioned the NGOs and the international agencies and, and, and many governments. Now, that you know, many have changed in, in you know, since my book and since this area has become well-known, uh, better known. But still, there is this caricature, isn't there, on behalf of many NGOs and the teacher unions and so on, that for-profit is going to be exploitative. And... Uh, I think my books and my experience and, you know, uh, shows very clearly that, uh, you know, people come in as entrepreneurs creating, yes, it's called a for-profit business, um, but there's absolutely no disconnect between that and wanting to help and serve the poor communities. And and another thing, too, that's interesting that you know in your book is that 
and this is interesting, right? Because if people not familiar with this, this is something that after I after I read your book, I certainly understand now. And, and you being an expert in this, take for granted. But when people kind of put the idea again, especially in the West, of private education in their head, they probably think of tons of money going into a school that's making tons of profit and just rich people paying rich people. Essentially, might be a stereotype. But of course, as you say in your book, like you know, you found tons of schools in these areas that they're primarily servicing the poor or those with lower income. And you note that it, quote, it dawned on you that people running these schools must actually be profitable and actually sometimes very profitable. And sometimes they may just break even. But one thing that's interesting is that you noted that the reason why that you may have seen these private schools flourish in your discovery in India is because of one simple point that it's easier to attract investment as a business sometimes than as a philanthropist, or maybe not even investment, but interest from an entrepreneur, obviously. I think it's later on in the book when I'm talking about how this is a new frontier for investors. And this is, um, I was quite excited by that. And, and the idea there is um, if you want to create, say, a chain of these low-cost private schools to better serve the poor community. Remember, these schools are better than the government schools. They're better. Right. They're already serving them, but no one denies that they can't be improved further. So if you want to invest in teacher training, curriculum developments. If you're one school on its own, um, you can only afford a little amount. If you're a, a chain or a group of 10 schools or 20 schools or 100 schools, then you know you can afford much more in terms of a more ambitious teacher training program, and, um, uh, uh, curriculum development, technology, and so on. So the idea was, can we create change of these schools to better serve these communities? And I experimented after that book was published with a few chains, a couple in India, a couple in West Africa, and um, one in Honduras, Central America. And the idea was, if you're a chain, a for-profit chain, then you can attract investors into that in a way that if you are a charity or a, you know, an NGO, you've got to get a gift, haven't you? You've got to get a donation, right. whereas if you're a chain, then you can get someone who wants to put capital in with the prospect of, Eventually, you know, depending how patient the capital is, um, but eventually getting a return on that investment, or at least getting the investment back, you know. Um, so, so that is um, that. That's the fundamental difference. Now, it's actually, you know, it's slightly more difficult than that. Slightly more complicated. After you know, the book was written several years ago, and um, you know, the, ex the experience has been mixed in getting attracting investors to these chains hmm. one of the problems of course is if you know an american or canadian investor comes in and puts you know five hundred thousand dollars in to to a company in west africa the the company can grow and flourish do everything that you'd want if you're an investor unfortunately the currency can collapse so your five hundred thousand dollars you put in or your million dollars or whatever you put in can still be doing everything. The company can be doing everything wonderfully and, and growing and whatever, but then the currency collapses. So they can't give you the return that you anticipated. And that is, that's something that's, you know, does put investors off um, coming into this, this area. Now, obviously that's not true for investors from the country itself. Um, and it's not true for some very patient investors. Or, or you, or you, of course, you can um, hedge for currencies depreciation as well. But that, that's a that's a technical issue. In general, creating chains, yeah, you can attract investment, and therefore you can better you can better serve the communities you're working with. 
And also, I assume from a business perspective, uh, when you're going the in either self-investment route or trying to attract exter- attract external investors, you're following a business plan. You're trying to go like that. Whereas if you're going the, the state route or the public education route, you're either trying to somehow score some government funding or you're going through a set of regulations or, or, or it's like an entirely different pathway, I would suppose, the business route from yeah. uh, from the public route. And I, in some countries in your book, too, you noted that the, the way they regulated the whole, the whole education sector, I mean, it was it was tightly controlled by what the state and the or the ministers wanted to do in terms of funding and opening up a bit brick and mortar school. So the business route must be more attractive to people that are actually trying to do some quick innovation and make make an investment and make some change yeah. rather than the state investment route. But but you you you've mentioned regulations of states and and this is something that you know perhaps is the disappointing side of the book. And I think there's a one chapter in the book, isn't there, called an inspector calls where um, you know I catalogue the in, you know it, often extensive um, debilitating debilitating regulations that are there on these low cost private schools. Typically, they're focused on inputs to schools. So, you know, they're obsessed. The school has got to have a certain size playground. Well, you try finding that bit of land in one of the slums in in, in West Africa. Um, typically, the regulations specify teacher qualifications and teacher salaries. They got to be the same as in the government schools. Of course, then that completely destroys the business model because the whole the model is actually paying lower than the government schools, but performing better. And, and finding teachers who are willing to come in on uh, in, in that in that way. So, but the regulations can be debilitating, and there's a whole culture in many of these countries of inspectors demanding bribes in order not to close down schools and so on. And, and so, regulations—that's in a sense the dark side of it. You know, that chapter in Inspector Calls um, focuses on that. I've seen much more of that in, in, in you know, since and since I've been trying to operate schools myself in these countries. One is aware that government was well, actually one of the people I first met in Heidelberg. I said this great line: "Sometimes government is the enemy of the people," and has stuck with me ever since. That's often how they perceive the way the regulations are trying to damp down on these schools and um, and, and don't allow them to innovate and flourish in the way that, you know, if it was a classical liberal market, we, we would we would think it could operate. As you said, your book's written in 2009, and, and a lot of what's in there was is uh, is from your travels earlier, and your great discovery was, was around 2000. So again, you've journeyed to so many countries, cities, and villages, discovered private schools, serving poorer markets, and doing so successfully. And as you said, in many cases, better than, than the government. Um, and as we mentioned before, are those some know of private schools in these countries and are against them? That's in your book. Others express astonishment when you even mention that there's private schools just in their own quote unquote backyard, maybe some hundred kilometers away or whatever the case may be. So two part question. One, has that changed very much so since your journey and since you read the book? And two, at the time, what was fueling this astonishment? Just ignorance of people knowing what's happening a hundred kilometers away from them? Or was it was it just more more bias feeling that and more of like a denial sort of thing? So as I said, two-part question, is it still the same today that people are astonished? And at the time, what do you think was fueling that? Yeah, so so the astonishment, no, because now, you know, my book's out there, others have done research in there, and it's now quite well known that there are low-cost private schools serving uh, communities. In fact, for example, The Economist, this week's Economist, I'm plugging The Economist, um, has got an article about the fifty, the India's low-cost private schools 
the, the private schools that are serving 50% of India's population. Now remember, school population, that's 50% in general. In the cities, it's 70 or 80%. In the rural areas, 30%, 50% overall. Um, but yeah, so it, it is more, it's better known, although not amongst all communities, you know, not everyone knows about it now. And I can still get that look of astonishment when I start talking about this in someone's own country, you know, but when before lockdown, when one was able to travel, um, one still got that astonishment from people. Um, but so that's, that's 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 the first answer. And then the second part of the question was, oh, well, actually, I should also say, so that I wrote that book and I list, you know, I did that research in those five countries, didn't I? And then I would give talks about it and, um, and then I would say, what about your country? And they say, no, in our country, private education is for the rich, for the elite. Right. So, so this is what, while I was preparing to do the research in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and South Sudan, I would, you know, have done the research. I've come to Liberia and, and people would now know about this phenomenon, but still say, no, it's not happening in my country. Um, and, and then, but the really interesting thing was, as I say, this denial was extraordinary. But you, you said... So denial of what's in your backyard, a hundred kilometers away. No, it wasn't a hundred kilometers away. It might be five kilometers away. <laughs> right, right. And and I had um, well, I I, I think it, it was probably three elements. What one is, um, not you know, if you're middle class or above, working in government or NGOs, whatever, you tend not to go into poor areas. You know, this is the. And maybe that's changed a bit, but certainly that was the sort of scandal of it all 20, 15, 10 years ago. You know, people would, you know, espouse all the concern for the poor, but not go into these poor areas. So that was the first thing. Um, so, so you have, if you don't go into them, you can't see them. That's very straightforward, first of all. Um, secondly, some people have told me, and, and, and it's been really interesting this comment, people didn't have a concept to describe this. So, therefore, they ignored it or somehow, uh, in a peculiar way, ignored it. Uh, so one, and this is one, one example of a, a guy, a very sympathetic guy in an American think tank. Um, uh, he had been going to India for years, and I told him about, about this phenomenon. You know, I was in America, D.C., and he said, um, no, 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 it's not true at all. You know, I know India very well. I think he's married to an Indian or whatever. Anyway, and then got to India and sort of said, oh, wait, those schools, those those things, okay, yes. And it just hadn't dawned on him there was something interesting going on because if you haven't got a concept, sometimes you can just not see it, something. But, uh, that's a peculiar psychological, uh, for, for psychologists to explore. But thirdly, sometimes it was denial, definitely denial. People did know about them. They didn't want anyone else to know about them. And um, they... You know, but they didn't know how widespread they were, but they certainly were aware, ah, yes, in that sound there are one or two of these private schools, but we better keep quiet about them and close them down because they they threaten our whole model. That's the thing, the whole model of what education should be about. And sometimes it was very, you know, I, 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 mean, I don't describe that, but I went to Bangladesh to visit um, the banker to the poor, um, uh, uh, Nobel laureate uh, Mohammed Yunus, and uh, it was an extraordinary situation where I went a day earlier. I went to the slums of Dhaka and found you know low cost private school up to low cost private school as I was there in India and so on. And then went to see him and said, you know, he said, well, why are you here? And I said, well, I've come to celebrate the low cost the private school entrepreneurs. I used that phrase. And he said, no, 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 no. 
in, in, in my country, private schools are for the rich. <laughs> and so thinking, but these slums are just it's one kilometer from your office. Um, and that's not meant to, that's, that's not meant to, that, all that's meant to demonstrate is if you don't go there looking for them and have the concept, then perhaps you can ignore them very easily. Yes, it seemed to me like as I read through all the stories in your book too, that there was, um, a, a, as a part of this denial, if you will, was sort of a form of what people had as a con- uh, conception of what they thought education meant and a school meant in their head. And they couldn't reconcile that with what they were seeing. That is to say, someone might go, yes, James, we know there's a school out there where people uh, get into a room and learn things, pay money to do so. And there's a teacher and they might do homework and they might, you know, get together and form a sense. of But that's not what we mean by education. That's not a private school. That's, again, people paying for whatever that is. So that was sort of interesting, too. You could even describe to people yeah. what you were seeing, but it just didn't fit their idea. And their idea was usually a state school or something yes. formal in that way. And, and that's and that sort of example is partly what I was describing in the sense about that American, wasn't that, you know, but he he was sympathetic to it and still right. wasn't able to see it. And, and, and actually, and that's also when I was doing the research. So, you know, when I was first doing this research, I would always go out with my team, have large teams combing areas because, you know, these schools are not registered typically, or many of them, most of them are not registered. So you can't just go to government and get a list of them. You have to go and make that list yourself. And typically I'd send my teams into areas and they'd come back and say, no, there are none, none of the schools that you want there. Um, and I'd say, well, that's really strange. So I've just been you know, part of where you were going as a check and I found one just there. And it's exactly what you said. Oh, that, yeah, 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 yeah. I thought you meant a proper school. <laughs> and they have to send them back and yeah, then they can find the sort of, ah, it's, it's these little places. Yeah, they could be very small, but maybe only 50 kids. Um, some of them are much bigger. Some of them are much more like formal schools, but not all are, yeah. And I actually think that's a good place to take our break. So I'm gonna do that right now. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with James Tooley today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Rosa Pajarello, and Sabine L. Chidiak. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with James Tooley today. So, so James, I think the first part of our conversation provided a, a great overview uh, of, of what we're talking about when we talk about low-cost private education, especially in the developing world. We talked about some of your travels, your book, The Beautiful Tree from 2009. That was based, of course, on your travels and your research before that. And uh, and there was a couple of times in our conversation where uh, you alluded to and even listed some things on how the uh, low-cost private education solutions in certain communities uh, were, in fact, better than the state schools or the publicly funded schools. Um, and I just wanted to dive a bit more into that now because I made a list here, and and part of it's s- s- informed by some of the subheadings in one of your chapters. But but even outside of the context of that chapter, one thing I enjoyed is that each of those things that it seemed that the public schools were suffering from in uh, in your that you observed in your journeys would be what 
people would stereotypically think of as the private schools suffering from. So that is to say, for instance, you talked about the problem of in many countries, you saw the state funded and state run schools were suffering from things like absentee teachers, for example, that that was a huge problem. Uh, like uh, another thing you listed is uh, in in um, in a couple with the absentee teachers problem was was sort of like the distant teachers. This idea that the teachers didn't actually care had very minimal investment uh, in the students and what they were doing. So I have a couple more I'd like to talk about, but I'd like to stop with that teacher discussion first. Let's do that first. Again, this is something people might think of. Uh, if, if you have that caricature in your mind of this, uh, you know, uh, ex exploitative entrepreneur just taking your money and running a school, surely there'll be absentee teachers and teachers that don't care. But you, in fact, said it's the opposite. That was happening in a lot of your journey you observed in the state schools. And, and, and that is, um, you know, that's, that's, an ex that's been the experience ever since that book in many other countries. And, and it's not just my experience. It's a well-known phenomenon. So it, it has two aspects, doesn't it? So first of all, let's focus on the state schools. We're, we have a language problem here, don't we? You'd be happy calling them public schools, but state schools, government schools. Those are synonymous terms, aren't they, in, in, in what we're using here? Um, so so uh, I, I tend to call them government schools myself. But, um, so so um, first of all, the teachers in the government schools um, are, are government employees. They have a job for life. They're typically heavy, heavily unionized, and it's almost impossible to fire anyone and in that sort of environment and I'm, I'm you know this is no criticism sometimes of um the teachers themselves who you know i've met many keen young enthusiastic uh, noble teachers who come in right. early as, as i did i was a young teacher myself and that you know they come in with all the great things they want to do and then i remember this one young teacher very well again on a very early visit to to, I think this was in Karnataka in India. Um, beautiful young guy, really enthusiastic, really keen. And he was one of two or three teachers in the school that day. And the other seven or eight teachers weren't there. And so he was then trying to do something for all the kids or as many kids as he could. And he sort of, you could see, you know, he was really, yeah fired up he was going to help the school he wasn't going to fall into those ways but can you imagine that teacher a year later two years later you know you'd have to be a superhuman not to stop missing some days yourself not not being coming disillusioned with it and realizing well actually why am i doing all this why am i doing all this when my colleagues are just not coming to school and and that is commonplace it's almost impossible to fire um teachers in the government schools so not all, and it, some schools. I think the, the average figure is about the, the research generally shows about fifty teachers are teaching about fifty percent of the time they should be teaching. Um, the rest of the time, getting the kids to do chores for them, getting the kids to um, do their own work, but you know, or um, or just ignoring the kids, sending the kids home. Um, I remember one senior official said to me, um, "You know, it's." It's impossible to fire teachers. Only God can do that, he said to me. And, and then, he, then he thought, he said, no, not even God. <laughs> and, uh, um, and, and that was the situation. So that's one. And that you know, obviously leads to the low performances. And then go the private schools. Now, this can be seen as a negative. This goes back to our discussion in the first half about entrepreneurs and the profit motive and the rest of it. But 
if you don't turn up in a private school, what's going to happen to you? Well, the, 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 the entrepreneur, the head teacher, the manager is likely to be sympathetic if it's a first offence, as it were. You know, your mum was ill, your child was ill, whatever, you, know, you were ill, and, and you know, but there's often a good excuse or there's an accident on the road, whatever, you know, there's often good excuses. Um, and so it's likely to be sympathetic. But if you do it two, three, four times a week, you're going to get fired. <laughs> right. And and that's to some of our colleagues will seem negative, but it's what keeps the teachers on their toes. It's that magic word, isn't it? Accountability, that the proprietor is accountable to the parents so he makes sure he or she makes sure that the teachers are performing well. And and the teachers themselves know that if they don't perform well, they'll be out of a job. They want a job, and therefore they do perform well. So it's a it's a virtuous cycle, but it does lead to the occasional person who's not committed losing their job. I'd much rather have the, the occasional teacher losing their job and the children being taught well than teachers is safe in their jobs and not performing well at all. Right. And, and again, I still think that a lot of us in, in the in Western countries, we may have this, even if we're talking about private education and, and even if someone's listening to our conversation here today, they might have still have this perception of their in their head of, of, of the big private school or not. But one thing that I thought was really cool in the book related back to this point of accountability, you said, is that when we're talking about small, often smaller entrepreneurial deals and, and smaller businesses, effectively, uh, when it comes to the low cost private education system, one thing that also relates to that accountability point is if the parents are unhappy with the teacher at a certain school, they have just the, the element of choice. Not in all, all places, but in some cases, they have the element of choice to simply enroll their child in another school. If this is a product or a purchase or a, or a service that they're essentially purchasing, they, they treat it as such. They have to be satisfied with what they're purchasing, or either they'll talk to the headmaster and get upset, and then that teacher will be fired, or they, they might just switch to a different school. Yeah. Uh, so that's an element of accountability too, I would suppose. At least that's what I pulled from your book from the par- parents' angle. That's right. So this, you know, it's it's, it's what Hirschman called, the, you know, the the exit. Exit voice humility. This is an exit. You can get out and move. Of course, there are some you know, transaction costs of changing schools. There are some sunk costs like uniforms and things like that. Um, so you know, it's not quite straightforward. That, but it is a straightforward in terms of choice. That in urban communities, typically on any you know, go down any alleyway, you'll see three, four, five of these private schools. You know, any street. Um, they're not rare. You know, this is this is very important to. Get through to listeners. We're talking about in poor areas of Africa and South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, 70, 80% of kids are in these schools. In India alone, I estimate 450,000 low-cost private schools in India wow. alone. This is a massive thing. So, And even in rural areas, you go to villages, you still might find two low-cost private schools. Um, you know, so there's still some competition. I'm not saying always, but there there often is. So, so that's about absentee teachers. Then the other thing you mentioned was distant teachers, and I think this is a very important point. That um, if I'm a government teacher, you know, I, I go through the, the the government training. I feel you know, I feel good about myself. I've got this government job. I'm quite, you know, I've, I've satisfied. Um, you know, very lots of criteria, and um, and then I get posted to a school. Typically, you're posted somewhere. I get posted to that school across the other side of the city or outside of the city, serving the poor communities. 
And to be honest, I don't like the poor communities. You know, this is a teacher might think that. And I don't want to go there. So first of all, you might arrive late. You know, you, you can always use, you know, you can always use an excuse the traffic is bad. The traffic is always bad in these cities. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a, a very good excuse in Lagos or, you know, wherever, you know, this traffic is always bad. Um, and secondly, then you, you know, you're, you're, you might not, you know, might not feel close to those kids in the school. You might despise them. They might seem dirty and they might, all the rest of it. I mean, one example of that for me was um, in Gujarat, in, um, in, in, in West, Northwest India, um, in a fishing village, um, went there and um, asked the kids about their experience in the government school in the village. And one, one, one fisherman father said to me, um, he, he was so dissatisfied with how little his daughter was learning in the school. You know, I mean, basically just a handful of letters and you know, so dissatisfied that he went there. This fisherman father went to the school to complain about how little and about the teachers always arriving late, leaving early, not doing anything. And so on. he went to complain. And so this is now see it from the teacher perspective. These teachers are you know, they feel themselves quite high social uh, standing. This dirty, smelly, low-caste fisherman comes to the school to complain about their behaviour. They called the police and had him arrested. And off, off he was taken. And that's the sort of lack of, sort of distant teachers, distant from their children, distant from the parents, um, does not really caring. And... Again, we contrast that, and, and this, I'm not saying it's always true, you know, but that's a, a, a common theme. And they contrast that in the private schools, the teachers are normally from the low-income communities themselves. They will have experienced everything the kids are experiencing. There'll be nothing unusual or strange about their experience, and they will uh, therefore 100% relate. Now, that doesn't mean to say they relate in a way and they just excuse bad behavior or not doing work. No, but they say, right. look, you've just got to find that quiet space to do the work, or you've just got to stay after school and do that work. You know, you can't, you know, so they're, they're in touch with the difficulties of being growing up in those communities um, and, and therefore relate much better to the kids and of course to the parents. And in the same vein, one of the arguments that was often put forward, not in the exact words I'm going to say, but but it was the, the general uh, thrust of it by a lot of people you talked to that you described in your journeys in your book was that one of the main arguments for for, uh, for state or government-run education was essentially, as you said, people often look down at these low-cost uh, private education schools and specifically about the conditions that were in them. And of course, I'm not going to sit here and say that what's in your book is, is basically saying that every low-cost private education school environment was the, the, the highest-end thing you could find relative to that culture. But the fact is, is that what was clear from your book is that if one of the stronger arguments for um, government education and government-run schools in some countries was this this discussion about conditions in the schools being better, uh, sometimes they may have been slightly better, but other times you even found that they were worse or just comparable. There wasn't as strong of an argument for the better, quote-unquote, conditions of the government schools in some of these countries as compared to the private ones, it seems. Yeah, and, and, and that, so that research was quite specific, though. It was saying, you know, was there, 
drinking water provided? Was there um, separate toilets for boys and girls? Well, were there toilets first of all, and then were there separate toilets for boys and girls and separate toilets for staff? So particular criteria. Um, and I, I, if I recall the research correctly, um, yeah, often case the low-cost private schools were better than than the government schools on those those um on, on those aspects. But seeing the schools themselves, I mean, almost uniformly, you think that government school, you know, it did, typically they do look much better than the private schools. Um, and you know, they, they'd be uh, you know, uh, a, a proper a proper building in a way that perhaps a private school might be a shack, you know. You might have a shack which has got the toilets. The proper building doesn't have the toilets, you know, or or the toilets are not non-functioning. You know, that sort of thing. These are not uncommon phenomenon where, or the, in a government school, the the toilets are not functioning or they're not working, and so the the um, the children use a neighbor's garden, you know, something like that, you know, right? That sort of thing. Um, so so yeah, the conditions and, and you know. Let, let, let's be fair. Some of the some of the criticism of the conditions are, are meant well. You know, you don't want kids to be in an un, 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 a harmful environment, but it's often used as a way of clamping down on these schools um, rather than saying, "Okay, well, you're clearly providing a better education. You're clearly parents want to go to your school more than to the others. Um, so, if you're building these improvement, well." You know, why don't we help you improve your building? And there are people coming in, philanthropists and um, and um, uh, entrepreneurs creating loan funds for local private schools. As a result of my book, you know, I explore these possibilities in the last chapter. And people have come in and created loan companies, both philanthropic and um, and for profit, where a, a school entrepreneur can borrow. Um, some of the money and can improve the buildings as well as add an extra classroom. I, I suppose um, my my thinking since then, or my experience since then, and maybe the poor communities I'm working in have become more sophisticated. But buildings right. do matter, perhaps uh, more now than I had realised then, or than they did then. Um, and and they matter for one very important reason, and that is parents see a better building as showing, it's a demonstration, it's a signal that this person is more likely to stay than a building that's not so good. And I'm not saying that not so good building, they do leave, but it's just, it's a, it's a signaling. If you put a lot of money into a building and it's a it's a better condition, then you know, that, that looks like a sign of being able to stay around. But, you know, as I say, poor communities are more aspirational now and buildings may matter more. Than, than perhaps uh, I, I thought earlier. To tie back to something you were saying before, some of these people might not have been making the criticisms purely from an honest point of view. That is to say, you know, as you said, their next step in their head might not to be, well, maybe we can help these communities improve uh, what they viewed as the poor conditions of the school. Often this was just sort of another way to bang their fist on the table and say, see, aha, look how terrible this school is here without even gauging if the education happening in it was uh, what was quality or not. Without engaging in what the quality of the education was and also without comparing where the children live. You know, I, I mentioned that a few times in the book. Right. This school looks bad, but you should see where the children live. You know, the school is actually a huge advantage on where they live. Um, 
and not just bang their fists, but you know, seek to close down these schools. And it's very interesting. So I did mention E.G. West at the beginning of the first half, and he is from your city. I mean, he was actually from England originally, of course, but then he he went to Carlton University later on for, for most of his later career. And he, he talks about the Newcastle Commission report. And it's a really amazing report from the 1860s in England and Wales. And he describes you know, what I now call the low-cost private schools of Victorian England, of the poor areas there. And he talks about the inspectors coming in and saying, your building is not good enough. <laughs> your building is not good enough. Your teachers are not well enough trained. Your teachers are not um, paid enough. All the criticisms that we hear now about the low-cost private schools there were echoed back in the Newcastle Commission report that E.G. West from your, your city was talking about all those years ago. I, I find that really fascinating, that, that com comparison, that you know, nothing much has changed there. We still criticise entrepreneurs for not reaching the standards that, well, if the government schools reach them, Maybe they don't even reach them, but the standards are not needed necessarily in to, to do what the schools are doing, which is to provide a better education. It's a really important point. Right, and and just just to pick up on something you also mentioned in there that uh, although um, many of us in the West, for instance, as an example, might might fall into the trap of criticizing another country or another culture based on the standards we see here and that we think are acceptable, whether it comes to like a relative wealth point of view or the or the way they should be doing things. As you were saying before, and, and you did mention it before, I just want to get into it a little further, that that also kind of happens within countries too. As you said, right, if someone from the inner city of a certain country uh, is, is, re is relatively privileged, perhaps they're the cousin or, or of the government minister or something, or, or they work or they work with the government, as you said, when they travel out and to a more rural area or just outside the city or see an area uh, with, with more poverty or just doing education differently, uh, again, what they're ultimately doing is projecting the way they think it should be run. They're not really looking to see if the education there is quality. They're saying, well, as you said, look at the building, look at this, et cetera. They might think in their head, well, this isn't somewhere I'd send my child to school, but they're not putting themselves in the shoes of the parents that are sending their children to that school. That's a really, really important point, isn't it? Yeah, we exactly, you know, many people rightly would say that, you know, I couldn't send my child to this school because the facility is not great or, um, or, or whatever. I can afford better. But you're exactly right. For the parents in those communities, um, these schools are their preferred choice because they care for their children both pastorally and educationally. And... Uh, and, and actually, it's, it's, it's also worth mentioning, because I keep using that phrase, low-cost private schools. It's the, it's the phrase that we're, the banner we're work, talking under today. But in a way, I wish I didn't have to use that phrase, because, of course, if you're a poor parent in you know, a poor community, what's low-cost to you and me is actually not low-cost. Now, it's important to say it's affordable, but nonetheless, it, it, it is... You know, it's not necessarily, it's not, you know, when I say it's $1, $5, $10 a month, that's not a low amount. It's not nothing. It's something you, you're considering right. carefully when you pay, you can afford it. Um, but nonetheless, you, you consider it carefully and you don't just throw that money away glibly as you and I might throw away a dollar, $5, or at least not be so concerned 
about the minutiae of how we spend that. Absolutely. Well, I guess nevertheless, that does make the case though, right? There's sort of two ways of thinking about people in developing countries or those who might be living under poverty and what kind of decisions they're making. The one way we could think about it is look at them and say, the, what a silly choice based on my preferences. Another way we can look at it is say, well, if they are making that choice and assuming they aren't medically insane, there's got to be some sort of economic rationality happening in, in what they're doing. They're not just throwing their money. As you said, they're not just throwing their money out the door. No, and that's a very important uh, uh, reminder of, again, one in the, the book I took about that uh, Nigerian um, government official said, poor parents are just ignoramuses, ignoramuses. Yes, I remember that in the book. Yes, that's what he said. Well, yeah. a terrible place to use. But, and this is commonplace, commonplace, this idea that, okay, these poor parents are being hoodwinked, you know, as that first, you know, the first comments that I heard when I first discovered this school 21 years ago, poor parents are being hoodwinked. And, you know, the, the, the argument may have got more sophisticated now. Oh, they like the fact that children in nice uniform, they are well-behaved, uh, you know, the teachers might turn up, but, Still, these schools are useless, and the parents are being hoodwinked, they're being fooled, the poor parents are ignoramuses. But you and I are not taken in by that. You, you know, your comment is exactly right. If you're poor, your money is precious, you can afford it, but if your money is precious, you're not just going to fritter it away. You're going to think very carefully, you're going to talk to other parents, your family, you're going to talk to your neighbours, and you're going to choose a school that caters well for your child, and you're going to keep an eye on that school. And make sure that your child's homework is marked, um, is, is checked, as I think you said, North America. You know, keep an eye on the the the, the behaviour and so on. I mean, I, I started running these schools, you know, some schools for a while, creating uh, embryonic chains and so on. And uh, I used to have parents' meetings, and you know, forgive me for this, but you know, I'm coming in from outside and. Uh, creating a school in a poor community, you know, you saw it's, <laughs> maybe parents would have been grateful, you know, you had that sort of feeling, I'm going to go to this parent meeting and come away feeling quite good about myself. Not so bit of it. Why did the teacher not turn up on Wednesday morning? You know, why have you not paved this area of the courtyard? Um, you know, when are you going to repair that bit of the roof or whatever? You know, parents are onto you. And parents are aware of what's going on. And that's good. I'm not complaining about that, by the way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It was a surprise, first of all. You know. I think there's a, I think just on your point there, there's a lot to be said from when, again, we're not saying it's all perfect, but one of the main elements of the discussion about the uh, private education in this way is that, um, especially in these communities, that the power is shifting into their hands, as I was saying before, as, as consumers and purchasers of a service, not as um, attendees of a, of a government project. And, and actually, um, it's also perhaps worthwhile stressing another point because some of your listeners might be thinking, okay, you know, Tuli was saying that schools are affordable, but obviously if parents didn't have to pay for the schools, then they, you know, have, they'd have more surplus cash for other things. Um, it's very important in the discussion to say, to, to realize that sending a child to a government school is not free. Okay, that's a very important point because often the contrast is between low-cost private schools, which people accept the fees are you know, not outrageous, but nonetheless still have to pay fees. And sending right. to a government school where it's free. No, it, for several reasons. First of all, in many of these countries, the government schools themselves, either the school or the teachers, 
charge some sort of informal fees for the, for the kids and or parents. You know, there might be a building levy or a development levy or a, you know a, a sports levy or something like that, which are in effect compulsory, and they are some part of the fees. But nonetheless, they will be lower than the, the fee that, that that's there in the, the private school. But then you have there are lots of additional costs to sending a child to school. You have to buy shoes, your uniform. Typically in this country, it's always uniform. You need books, you need transport, you need food, and all these sort of things, lunch. Um, and if you add up, and we've done research on this, and if you add up the, the other costs, typically they are the same on average in the government schools and the um, low-cost private schools. Low-cost private schools might have a slightly more expensive books, or demands for more books, but the government schools will typically be further away, so you have to pay more on transport. You know, so they balance out. So the other costs are the same. The fees are clearly higher in the private schools than the government schools. But when you when you um, put them all together, we, we've got to figure something like this. Typically, that the cost to a parent of sending a child to a government school typically was around seventy five percent of the cost of sending a child to the private school, but conversely, the cost of sending a child to private school is 1.3 times the cost of sending to a government school. Yes, more expensive, but not just in a, not in a different league. If you see what I'm saying, it's yes, absolutely. Yeah, so that's 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 you know that's useful to remember. So we're not comparing a free government system with um, an ex, even an inexpensive private system. We're comparing somewhere where parents also have to pay for the government system too. Absolutely. And and that point alone is, is powerful enough, but that's even just talking about, as you said, like the hard cost, the, the price, if you will. On top of that, when we throw the other element of the conversation in, which is the quality of the education and, and the very real cost to the children of having an absentee teacher, these things stack up. Yeah. I, I, yeah but, and and you're, you're absolutely right to remind me of that because, you know, so I, I said, I've talked about the cost, but then also... If you compare the number of hours children are in school, and hours are right. not necessarily a perfect indicator of what goes on, but they'd be pretty good at this. You know, typically in the government schools, you might only be four hours in the school, in the private schools, you might be six hours. And so if you bring that in, the cost per hour then becomes probably more expensive in the government schools. And our time's winding down a little bit here, but before we head to the formal wrap-up, I just wanted to ask you, even if many are presented the information that you you and I have talked about here and they listen to this conversation uh, I, I still picture so, some people in their mind, not outrightly, but maybe still reactively, because we're so used to different things here, especially in this country, Canada, in your country, uh, England, and then, of course, in the United States, too, where a lot of our listeners are. They still might have a hard time getting over over this uh, mentality shift on what education means and how, and how how the small business entrepreneurs go about their business in some of the countries you you visited overall do you think we're still stuck in this mindset here in the west that education is not a, a small business thing or a community thing or something that's very local but rather again th- this this grand state project this grand government project where bricks and mortar schools are 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 built i suppose another way of looking at it is that is it still hard for people to get in their minds do you think that um, you could provide school as a service more like an artisan stationary shop rather than a large uh, brick and mortar store that you'd see in, in well, as a Walmart, let's say. The, the scale of this, I think, is hard for people to wrap their minds around. So, so, so scale is certainly one aspect of it. 
But I think I think this whole idea we I think we're totally immersed in this notion that governments should be providing education. Um, in, right. in England and Wales, um, last year was the 150th anniversary of um, of the state getting involved in education, the creation of the board schools in the 1870 Act. Um, and, you know, that's 150 years of, in a sense, well, you could put it too strongly um, and call it indoctrination, but nonetheless, certainly acquiescence in a government being involved in such an important part of our lives, you know. Right. We're in, we're in school for 12 or 13 years. It's compulsory for that amount of time. So first of all, you've got the state making everything compulsory. Typically, then, you've got the state determining the curriculum in many countries, the curriculum and the examination, the assessment system. And typically, you've got the state dictating many other things about this. And we get used to it from a very tender age, you know. And so we are we are brought up in the system. Our parents were brought up in it, and so it's very difficult to question it. And um, what this work that I've been doing, you know, overseas for the last twenty years um, shows that it's not necessary. It's not essential. It's not essential to serve the poor, which is often a reason people think, "Oh well, maybe the rich will be all right, the poor won't be all right." No, the poor are better off in the private system. And what E.G. West from your home city showed was that was also true in Victorian England and Wales and also in the American states, the American colonies and states, and in Australia and so on. Um, he showed the same thing, that the state wasn't needed and the state then came out and pushed out the, the, um, the, 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 the private schools, the private providers who could have been entre entrepreneurial, innovative and so on, and created this uniform system that... You know, maybe was okay for the times. Now, perhaps, is completely the wrong system. I've just got a book coming out in March. I think um, the publisher chose it's from the Independent Institute in Oakland, California. Um, the publisher chose the title "Really Good Schools." I didn't particularly like that title. I wanted to call it "The Emancipation of Education." But nonetheless, it it does exactly what you've been saying. It's saying, well, what are the lessons from what I've been describing overseas? Or what goes on in America, in Canada, in England. Um, and it's suggesting actually that the mindset doesn't have to remain like this, that we can challenge that mindset and we can start to think of education outside of the Leviathan. We can start to think differently about this. And that way lies uh, emancipation. That way lies, what's that? I'm trying to hear that line from Bob Marley's. Um, Redemption song, um, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but, our, none but ourselves can free our minds. I'd love that line because it's actually that's what I'm talking about, isn't it? That none but ourselves, entrepreneurs outside of the state, we can free up the education system, which is in effect what creates uh, you know, the, the educated mind, the mind. And to add to that point, too, you know, I think sometimes a lot of people are stuck in this. Um, this, this black and white framework that is to say where the idea is, is it private businesses running schools uh, with no state involvement or support? Or is it, you know, uh, the, the government stepping in, building schools, hiring teachers, etc.? If there is an argument to be made for the government to support or fund something, why not fund the people to make their own choices? Yeah. I think that's always on the table, too. And sometimes people speed past that in these conversations. Yes. So, so I, I focused on that. And there's a chapter in my new book on this. And I think I've written stuff in the past about it. 
I actually, you know, I'm not sympathetic to the argument anymore of government funding through vouchers or some similar thing. Hmm. Maybe this is a conversation for another time. Uh, you know, we'll have you back. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'd love to come back. But yeah, so so I tend to think, you know, I've, I've become this private sector purist because I've seen the advantages of the sector, and I don't want it to become sullied by you know, government money coming in. He who pays the piper calls the tune. Governments will then distort and restrict and impose on this sector, which actually we see can flourish without government funding. That's excellent. And I hope, I, I bet Sabine in the background producers scribbling a note here because that's definitely an hour topic unto itself. And I'd love to hear about that because as we know, and as many of our listeners know too, the idea of vouchers or or school choice through uh, government funding people as opposed to school, that's a huge conversation. I think it'd be very interesting to hear your thoughts on that. Unfortunately for today, actually, that's running right up against our time limit. But um, we can head to our formal wrap up and, uh, James, in each episode, I want the guests to ultimately have the last word and the final set of thoughts. So let, let me say, we've talked about a lot. Uh, let's try and bring the conversation full circle, or at least put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on if low cost private education is, is possible? If someone was going to leave this one hour or so that we spent together here with a couple of thoughts in their head, what would you ultimately want those to be? So the question we've been addressing, is low cost private education possible? Well, the answer is yes. So there's a very simple takeaway. Yes, it is possible. But not only is it possible, but it's able to better serve the poor and disadvantaged communities than the gut than government education. Remember those things I listed at the beginning. It's ubiquitous, it serves the majority of the poor. Children in schools outperform those in government schools. They're affordable to parents and they're the preferred choice of parents who are you know, restricted in what they can afford. Nonetheless, they prefer these schools. So here, I, I think it's just an extraordinary revolution that's taking place. I catalogue it in the book um, a few years back, but I've catalogued, carry on cataloging. This new book coming out in March also has some new up-to-date data. It's a very exciting area. Don't let anyone ever, ever convince you that we need the state in education because without the state, there will be no provision and there'll be no provision, especially for the disadvantaged. What my work shows is... That's absolutely not true. Low-cost low private education is possible, and it's actually advantageous to poor communities. Excellent. I think that's a great place to leave it. So, James Tooley, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you so much for inviting me. really enjoyed meeting you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.